bringing to life the souls of the past that until now have been lost to history. Talking Heart Island is a half-hour weekly podcast that explores the history of Heart Island, America's largest mass graveyard. Heart Island has been used as New York City's Potter's Field since 1869. It is estimated there are over one million people buried there. Because of recent advances in DNA and fingerprint technology, the identities of some of these previously forgotten and anonymous people have been revealed. The results are truly shocking. Talking Heart Island will interview a special guest each week, selected from an extraordinary assembly of scholars, authors, and scientists in the fields of history, law, medicine, and the arts, as we unravel a secret kept hidden for 150 years. So welcome to Talking Heart Island. And now, here's our host, investigative history writer Michael T. Keene. Thank you very much, Norma Jean, and this is Michael Keene, and we are Talking Heart Island. One quick thing before we begin, we've been asked, how can you pick up a signed copy of our book, New York City's Heart Island, A Cemetery of Strangers, and our audiobook, narrated by Norma Jean. And you may do so by simply logging on to our website, michaeltkeen.com. Most of this generation of Italian immigrants took their first steps on U.S. soil in a place that has now become a legend, Ellis Island. In the 1880s, they numbered 300,000. In the 1890s, 600,000. In the decade after that, more than 2 million. By 1920, more than 4 million Italians had come to the United States, which represented more than 10% of the nation's foreign-born population. This new generation of Italian immigrants was distinctly different in makeup from those that had come before. The vast majority were poor farmers and laborers looking for a steady source of work, any work. There were a significant number of single men among these immigrants, and when they died, some even found their way to Hard Island. Diane Vecchio is a professor of history at Furman University in Greenville, South Carolina. She's a native of central New York, and she earned her Ph.D. in modern U.S. history from the Maxwell School at Syracuse University. And Professor Vecchio, how are you today? Very good. Thank you, Michael. Well, I'm really uh, happy to have you. You know, um, it says uh, Central New York, but I believe it was Cortland. Is that where you're originally from, Cortland? Uh, exactly. I was born in Cortland. I've, I've driven through there maybe 500 times uh, around Route 81. <laughs> oh, right. Uh, exactly. And in fact, that's where my immigrant family uh, migrated to. In the 19, in 1921, and then later when my father immigrated in 1937. Well, so not to uh, get too far afield, why did they choose Cortland? Well, 
Um, one of the reasons they chose Cortland, which was a small town in central New York, is because uh, primarily of a large factory that was hiring. The name of the factory was Wickwire Wire Company, and it was the largest industry in Cortland at the time. And um, a lot of people heard about it, and they followed Kinship Networks to Cortland because they knew they would be hired there. I see. Were they a part of what you would call this great migration of Italians coming to America, or was that more towards the latter stages of that? Well, in my particular uh, family history, it was in the latter stages. Um, my two grandfathers immigrated from Italy in 1921. My father came in 1937. Uh, he was really, uh, his father had uh, attempted to get him out and the rest of the family because of um, the fascism and uh, Mussolini's policies. Uh, will you tell us, when did the uh, primary, what was the time period of the Great Migration? Right. Well, it, it it was, as you mentioned earlier, Michael, between 1880 and 1920. Um, during that period of time, four million Italians immigrated um, to the United States. Um, what a lot of people may not realize is that Italians chose the United States, but they also went other places. They immigrated to Canada, England, Australia, uh, several countries in uh, South America, particularly uh, Argentina. Did they come from any particular place in Italy? Absolutely. The immigrants who came during this period of time came primarily from southern Italy and Sicily. They came from region, the regions of Abruzzi, the Campania, which is kind of in the uh, south-central part of the country, Puglia, Basilicata, in the boot, and Calabria, also in the boot of Italy. Those were particularly um, difficult places to live um, at the turn of the 20th century because of poverty um, and uh, the economy. Uh, the economy was very, very poor in southern Italy and Sicily. So they decided to primarily come to America. How, this is something that I've always wondered. How did they get to the ships? Uh, were there okay. trains that would take them, or how did that happen? Yeah. Um, before I answer that, Michael, would do you mind if I talk a little bit more about the things that pushed them out oh, of Italy? Please, yeah, please do. Yeah, okay. Uh, because, you know, immigration historians usually term these events as push-pull factors in immigration. So if we look at the factors that were pushing immigrants out of Italy, one of the first things would be the economy. Low wages, the agriculture was really suffering, especially in southern Italy, mostly because the United States had cut imports of Italian citrus due to production in California. You know, this is the same time that California is becoming a major citrus-producing state. So now Italy has to compete, compete with them as well. Furthermore, 
um, the grape harvest was hit with a fungus known as phloxera. It totally destroyed Italian vineyards, decimating the wine industry. So in addition, the soil in some areas of southern Italy, um, in particular the areas around Basilicata, Calabria were very poor, rocky, infertile, and farmers used primitive agricultural methods as well. A lot of the landless peasants were exploited by wealthy landlords, um, and you know some of them wanted an opportunity to earn money and maybe return to Italy and purchase their own land. If I can give you an example of my grand, my paternal grandfather, for example. They owned a small plot of land, but he wanted to extend his land holdings. They grew grapes and olives on their land. So he decided to come to America because one of the poles that was so important during this time was the industry in the United States. But my grandfather never intended to stay here. He only came with the idea of earning money and then returning to Italy and buying more land. And, of course, that that happened with a lot of people. Right. So, in fact, many did return to do just that, correct? They did. You know, a lot of people from Italy, probably more than any other area of Europe, came with the intentions of staying a short period of time and returning. We used to call these people birds of passage. More often now, we just refer to them as return migrants. But as time went on, more and more Italians ditched the idea of returning to Italy and decided to settle um, permanently in the United States. And that's when they called for the rest of their family members, because initially men, you know, usually migrated first by themselves. Right. And and so the expectation was that they would then send for the rest of their family later? Exactly. When they, once they got situated, they would send for the rest of their family later. Um, and again, if I can use my own family's experiences as an example, my paternal grandfather, when he came here in 1921, saved up a lot of money, and he initially, though he decided to go back, uh, he changed his mind, you know, in the 30s because uh, things were getting much worse in Italy. So he purchased a home, and he finally sent for the rest of his family so they could escape fascist Italy. You know, I've been uh, curious as to what people were would bring with them. I mean, here they were leaving mm-hmm. their homeland, going to this other country. Presumably many were going there forever. What did they bring with them? Yeah, unfortunately, there wasn't a lot they could carry with them. Um, if you've ever seen people disembarking from ships at Ellis Island, you'll notice that a lot of them, some of them have suitcases, but a lot of them are just carrying these huge bundles on their shoulders. Um, So there wasn't a lot they could take. Obviously, they took their best clothing with them. And a lot of people brought religious memorabilia. For example, they would bring their prayer books. A lot of people didn't have Bibles coming from southern Italy, but they did have prayer books. So they brought those. They often brought rosary beads because those would be very important to them as Catholics. 
They brought statuettes of their patron saints. They brought embroidered goods. It was a very big thing in Italy for women to be well-schooled in uh, needlework. So a lot of women brought um, things that they had embroidered or crocheted in Italy, and they, they brought those things with them. They, and photographs, uh, photographs of the family members that they were leaving behind. Ken, did your research get into what life was like on these ships that brought them to America? Um, I haven't myself done a lot of study of conditions on the ships because we basically know that they, it was pretty miserable. People were constantly sick. They were crowded. As you know, most people traveled steerage. Steerage was basically third class. Most of the immigrants coming over could do no better than that because they just didn't have the money. In third class, they were really crowded in living in very close proximity to one another. When they wanted air, you know, they would go up on uh, on deck and get uh, a breath of fresh air. Um, a lot of people brought um, as much food as they could carry to help sustain them on the boat. So, you know, for the Italians, they would be eating cheese, uh, salamis, capicola, things that could stay for quite a long period of time. You know, dried sausages and dried meats. So they finally come to America. They arrive at Ellis Island. But as I understand, Ellis Island wasn't the only destination port in the country when they came, correct? Can you talk about that a little bit? Uh, obviously, Ellis Island is the best known, and the majority of people coming during this period did come through Ellis Island. But uh, immigrants also uh, landed in the port of Philadelphia, Baltimore, wherever there was a port city. And depending on their final destination, they might be going to Philadelphia, they might be going to Boston, they might be going to Baltimore, um, New Orleans. A lot of Italians ended up in New Orleans. Um, so that was also a very popular destination. So, yeah, immigrants, uh, especially Italians, did go to other ports, but Ellis Island was the largest. Well, the other ports, did they have a similar system set up as Ellis Island did to, to uh, yeah. accommodate the immigrants? Um, they did, but to a much smaller extent. Um, they didn't have uh, the facilities that New York had with Ellis Island because there were far fewer immigrants coming into, you know, like the Port of Baltimore or New Orleans or Galveston, Texas, places like that. So they had they, they had to go through, you know, screenings, but they didn't have the elaborate facilities that Ellis Island had. Of, of the immigrants who came through Ellis Island and who decided to stay in New York City, what, what area of New York did they originally go to? Uh-huh. For those immigrants coming to New York, most of them settled on the Lower East Side, Immigrants, uh, land, you know, landing and, and settling on the Lower East Side. Italians often uh, lived on Orchard Street, Mulberry Street, 
And interestingly, uh, they lived usually adjacent to uh, Jewish neighborhoods. Um, Wherever a Jewish neighborhood ended, uh, an Italian neighborhood began. And a lot of them were interspersed. What what, what kind of businesses did they initially set up when they relocated to the Lower East Side? For Italians, it was um, not so much business as it was working in the industrial, in the, the needle trades and the factories that existed. I see. Well, now, I'm, I'm thinking the, there has to be a couple of restaurants down there. Right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, for as far as the, the businesses, um, of course, those will those will come about a uh, a little later because, you know, in order to start a business, you've got to have a little bit of money. So, yes, restaurants did uh, exist, um, and there were a number of ways that immigrants could make money. They often, and we see this especially in smaller towns uh, and cities, immigrants often turned the Um, the front room of their tenement or their apartment or their home into a grocery store. So they stocked it with things like tomatoes for making sauce, pasta. Uh, They purchased cheese that would be hanging in the window. And um, interestingly enough, it was often women who ran these grocery stores in their homes. Um, you find this especially in places, even outside of places like New York City, in upstate New York, for example, or in Pennsylvania, New Jersey. You'll find immigrants who have a home or have a an apartment, and they u- utilize part of it as a um, grocery store. This is also big in Milwaukee. Same same kind of strategies in Milwaukee. So. With the men, who were the ones who I guess were uh, uh, more artisans, perhaps, but although they were uh, laborers, but what other skills did the Italians bring with them when they came here? You're you're right. There were a lot of a lot of Italians were artisans. Um, they were masons. They were shoemakers. They worked in uh, a lot of the immigrants who settled in New York ended up working in industry in the um, needle trades. A lot of the women worked in the needle trades. In places like Pennsylvania, for example, a lot of immigrant men went to work in the mines. And uh, as I mentioned earlier in the in the broadcast, um, the places like Cortland, which is right in the center of the state, uh, you would find immigrants working in these small factories. Women also utilized a lot of strategies for earning income in the United States. What's interesting about Italian women is that they basically didn't have a history of working outside of the home in Italy. But, you know, part of their adaptation to American society was working outside of the home. So we often find Italian immigrant women working in the needle trade if they were bogged down with children small children especially, um, and they couldn't leave home for a job, they took in what is known as homework. So they often went to the garment factories 
and collected things that could be worked on at home, like sewing buttons on uh, coats or making hats, uh, things like that that could be done, finished, finishing work that could be done at home. And uh, this was known as homework, and they did it within their tenement apartments, and they often had utilized their children to help them with it. Earlier, you mentioned that uh, some of them became shoemakers. I believe you did some research on a shoe factory. Was it in Endicott, New York? Yeah, that's correct. Um, the first book I published was uh, based on my doctoral dissertation, which examined the shoe workers of Endicott Johnson in uh, in the cities of Endicott, Binghamton, uh, and Johnson City. Uh, right again, right in the center of, of New York State. The Endicott Johnson Shoe Factory was a very large industry. It employed about 20,000 people at its peak. And a huge proportion of the of the people who worked there were, in fact, immigrants. A lot of them were Italian, but they also employed a lot of Slavic people, Russians, Ukrainians, Poles, Czechs. It was quite uh, an a, you know interesting place for multiculturalism. Is the uh, factory still in existence today? No, the factory unfortunately went out of business in the 1970s, but it existed from the about the 1870s. So it had a good 100 year run, and a lot of uh, both men and women worked for Endicott Johnson. Endicott Johnson practiced welfare capitalism, so they were very paternalistic. Um, they did whatever they could to keep unions out of the company, and they were successful for a very long period of time because of their practices of welfare capitalism. So what I mean by that is they offered benefits to their workers. If, for example, they had a homeowners, the ability for workers to buy homes built by Endicott Johnson. Uh, very uh, low down payment, very easy credit terms, um, and homeownership was a very important value for um, Italian immigrants. So this was a wonderful opportunity for Italians who really desired to own their own homes. Other examples of welfare capitalism at the Endicott Johnson factory include things like opening up a savings account every time one of their employees had a baby and depositing money for them, uh, providing hospital care, nursery schools, summer care for children, a maternity hospital. Um, yeah, so these are the kinds of benefits that Endicott Johnson provided for their workers that really kept workers uninterested in joining the union. But I must say that their wages tended to be lower also. Let's return uh, for a couple of minutes back to Ellis Island. Uh, sure. This may sound like a silly question, but what was the point of Ellis Island? I, I think we all think we know what happened there. But uh, describe the experience of being an Italian immigrant or any uh, immigrant. Any immigrant. Yeah. Uh, what happened there? Yeah. Uh, okay. So 
the the important aspect of Ellis Island was to process the immigrants. And I mean, this was a pretty elaborate and rigorous examination that included medical exams, first and foremost. The every person coming in had to be inspected for uh, disease, uh, any kind of a disease, lice, communicable diseases. In fact, um, another example, my other grandfather, who also came in 1921, a disease broke out while he was on board ship. And as soon as his ship landed, everybody on that ship was quarantined. So he had to stay at Ellis Island for two weeks until they were all cleared to leave. So Ellis Island hired medical inspectors, nurses, doctors who could inspect every one of these people. If there was any kind of a disease that was communicable or that was threatening, like glaucoma, glaucoma was considered one of the most dangerous diseases that if you, if you were found to have glaucoma, you would be sent back. So this is the first initial screening. If you didn't get through the medical screening, you would be sent back to your home. Now, immigrants were also questioned about um, their political beliefs, whether they were anarchist or not. After 1917, whether or not they were literate, they also went through screenings to see if they had any mental defects. And they had to engage in all kinds of, you know, kind of games and um, word associations. Um, There were specialists who were examining them because if they felt that they were mentally deficient, they could also be returned to their homeland. Or if they were, uh, if they were fearful that these people coming were anarchist or political threats to the United States, that of course would be cause or criminals. Anybody who had a criminal record could be sent back as well. You know, I, I have learned that I guess there are roughly 20 million people who came through Ellis Island and uh, they sent 500,000 people back. And I would imagine they fell into these categories because of medical reasons or mental defect or the character issue, correct? Absolutely. Uh, it's it's amazing. I, I wonder why we don't have an, another Ellis Island. Ever given that any thought? Why it seemed to work so well in the late 19th century and early 20th century, but nobody thinks about having something similar today? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. And, and part I guess part of the reason is because our, our country is so different. People aren't arriving in ships anymore. You know, it's it, the venues for coming into the United States are quite different now. And, you know, uh, the way they uh, apply to get here is, is different. It's much more elaborate and much more complicated now than it was. Um, Not to say that it was easy. You know, an immigrant had to uh, make out a form before they even left their home village, stating why they were leaving, you know, why they were coming to the United States, if they had somebody to sponsor them. Because the United States didn't want anybody that was going to be a burden on on society. So uh, immigrants had to prove that there was somebody 
waiting for them, um, somebody they could live with, somebody that could vouch for them when they got to the United States because the United States did not want people that were going to be vagrants or unable to support themselves. That's why they also had to come with a certain amount of money uh, in their pocket. They had to have a certain amount of money when they when they got on their ship. How much did they have to have? Well, it varied from a decade decade. Sure. Um, the um, nineteen, let's see, late late teens and early twenties, they had to have at least twenty five dollars. And that, that, of course, that would go up incrementally as time went by. And they had to pay for their passage to come to America? Yeah. They had to buy their tickets ahead of time. Right. And often, you know, families would get together and uh, pool their money so that one person could go initially. And then um, when they had more money saved up, they would help others follow them to the United States. And the Italians... They assimilated. I mean, it's. Um, I guess the assimilation is complete. Are there? But are there Italian neighborhoods still oh, in yeah. New York or elsewhere? Where are they? Uh huh. There are. They don't function quite the way they did when you know they were when they were first ethnic enclaves with the early immigrants. Um, but today, you can still find um, some Italian immigrants or immigrant neighborhoods. For example, in St. Louis, there's a place called The Hill. The area of New York that uh, was uh, Little Italy has been severely reduced and has been replaced mainly by uh, Chinese immigrants. But there is still, you know, all of the Italian businesses and restaurants on Mulberry Street and places like that in Little Italy. So it's still a an attraction because of the restaurants and, um, you know, fancy stores selling um, all kinds of goods. But there are a few throughout the United States. In Milwaukee, um, there is an area called the Third Ward where uh, Italian immigrants settled, and um, they have done much to preserve a section of the Third Ward as the, you know, gateway to um, Italian Milwaukee. But they don't function the way they used to. When immigrant enclaves were created in the early years of immigration, they were really fundamental for these people because, you know, immigrants would follow other immigrants to these areas and they would congregate in ethnic enclaves because it gave them a sense of belonging, uh, people who they could communicate with. So, you know, and this applied not only to the Italians, but to Asians, to the Jews, they created religious institutions. You know, um, the Italians would start Catholic churches that would often be in, in honor of their patron saint back in Italy, whereas Jews would start synagogues and shuls. So every immigrant group, you know, found the ethnic enclave a very important foundation for starting their lives in America. Well, it's been totally fascinating, and I uh, really want to thank you for spending the time with us to go over uh, this most important history of Italian uh, immigrants. Uh, thank you very much. Dr. You're Rocchio. very welcome. I enjoyed it. Thank you. Great. Bye now. Hi, this is Norma Jean. I wanted to take a moment to remind you 
in order to receive updates or news about upcoming episodes of Talking Heart Island, simply go to the subscribe page on our website located at www.michaeltkeen.com and enter your email address. If you have any questions about the podcast itself or simply wish to contact any team members for book inquiries, voiceovers, website or graphics design, use our contact page, also found at www.michaeltkeen.com. And if you're enjoying the show and would like to give us a review, please do so at iTunes. We would greatly appreciate it. So until next week, this is Norma Jean, and we're Talking Heart Island. (laughs) 